0: Is important is to prioritize. Uh, when we prioritize, of course, we, we make decisions about things that are more important, and we choose to focus ourselves on what's more important as opposed to just what happens to be in front of us and what's urgent or immediate, And and we all understand the need to prioritize. So when you move into a new place, virtually everything needs to be done, right? Boxes everywhere our newly married couples can attest. What do you do first? Not to Prioritize. When you have a big project at work, lots of moving pieces and parts and elements that must be constructed and strategically thought through, which one should you work on first, second, third? As we think about parenting, we're in the midst of a parenting course seminar. We know you can't focus on everything at the same time with your children unless you crush them and yourself. You've got to prioritize what you think is most important. This idea carries over into Ezra this morning. As we come to Ezra chapter 3. As we come to Ezra 3, we actually come to the first events in the life of Israel after she's come back to Jerusalem following her 70-year exile. So chapter 1 is how she got back. God moved in the heart of King Cyrus to release her. Chapter 2 is is who came back, the leaders and the laity, and then chapter 3 is what she did when she got back. In other words, the author presents this chapter, brothers and sisters, as move-in day plus 1. They've landed. The U-Haul just got sent back to the place on time. Boxes are everywhere. And frankly, the question is, what doesn't need to be done? What doesn't need to be done? And I just want you to think for just a second historically. Remember, Jerusalem had been sacked 70 years ago, burned to the ground. The place looked like a war zone because it was a war zone. And so the question is, what does she do? What does she focus on? Move in day plus one. What's of first importance? Worship. Of all the things Israel could focus on, the very first thing she does is reestablish the worship of God. So let's turn to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra is before Psalms and Proverbs in your Old Testament If you get to Psalms, Proverbs, or those big or little prophets that you can never remember where they are, you've gone too far. It's on page 390 in those blue Bibles in front of you. And I want you to read Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 with me. Ezra 3, 1 through 6. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord burnt offerings morning and evening and they kept the feast of booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. The year is 537. Cyrus issued his proclamation to the Jews to return in the year 538. They return in 537. We don't know exactly when. But we know that now it's the seventh month and that's comparable to September or October for us. So this is actually like right now. It's the time of the harvest and this seventh month is the most holy month in the Israelite calendar. The Feast of Trumpets takes place on the first day of the seventh month. The Day of Atonement takes place on the tenth day of this month. The Feast of Booths is on the fifteenth day of this month. These are huge events in the yearly life of Israel and so it makes total sense that as the seventh month gets rolling all of Israel gathers to Jerusalem did you notice in the text everybody gathers as one man now when they got back to Jerusalem when they got there not everybody landed in the city proper but they gather there now and what do the leaders do they build the altar of the God of Israel, verse 2. Now, why would they do this? Why, why would they build this altar? Because it's reestablishing the worship of God. That's that's why they build the altar. The altar is the baseline element of Israel's worship. So if you were here when we went through Leviticus just a couple of years ago, there are seven chapters describing all the offerings that Israel was supposed to offer. Burn offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. And where are all of those offerings made? They're made here at this altar. They're made here at this altar. And so it makes total sense that the first thing they do here on the seventh month is they build this off altar. And by the way, as they do this, they stand in continuity with God's people before before them. So Abraham, when he entered into Canaan, do you know what he did? He built an altar and he offered sacrifice. That's Genesis 12, 6 and 7. As soon as he got into the land, he did that. And Joshua, when he entered Canaan, do you know what he did? He built an altar and he offered sacrifice. That's Joshua chapter 8. And that's what they do here. They build the altar. They begin offering the sacrifices God has ordained in his word. That's verse 2. They built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 3 tells us they resume daily burnt offerings. So that's morning and evening. Verse 4 tells us they resumed the Feast of Booths with all of its offerings. That was a seven-day affair. Verse 5 and following tells us they resumed other offerings. You got new moon offerings. You got offerings associated with the other feasts commanded in the Torah. You got free will offerings. Verse 6 says that from the first day of the seventh month, the people of Israel began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Verse 6 is honestly just kind of a wrap-up saying, Hey, The altar's been rebuilt, and the offerings have been restored. The altar has been rebuilt, and the offerings have been restored. Now, I want you to pause, and I just want you to ask, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Well, for one, God's ordained it. And that's really the only reason we need to have. God's ordained this. Verse 2, they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 4, they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written and offered daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule. Verse 5, after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts, appointed by God's word. This matters Because quite simply, God is worthy of worship, God deserves to be worshiped, and God commands for his people to worship. That's why this matters. And number two, this matters because worship is good for God's people. Just think about the truths that God's people rehearse as they worship. The morning and evening burnt offering teaches them about grace. That sin demands a payment, but that God in His grace accepts the death of another in their place. That's grace. They see it on display every day, twice a day, morning and evening. The morning and evening burnt offering teaches them dedication. Just as the animal gave its life to God, so too they give their lives to God. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 12? We give our lives as a what? A living sacrifice to God. And so every day, morning and evening, twice a day, God's people get this picture that everything they have and everything they are is to be given to God. They're to spend and be spent for the Lord. Think about the Feast of Booths. Everything about this exciting and really fun festival reminds them that God is both sustainer and savior. This is a feast that rejoices in God's provision of another year's harvest. It closes out the harvest for the year. But it's also a feast that rejoices in God's salvation. Why do they dwell in booths, in tents? Because they're reminding themselves of how God saved them out of Egypt and provided for them by them dwelling in tents on their way to the promised land. This is a rejoicing festival in God's salvation. Now, I want you to notice one other thing. The context in which Israel made intentional efforts to restore the worship of God was actually quite tense. Verse 3. They set the altar in its place. Look at this. For fear was on them because of the people of the lands. Now, remember, Jerusalem is totally exposed Okay? The walls are broken down. The city is not fortified. Of course, they're fearful. And we're going to see in a coming chapter that they've got enemies all around. And in this light, isn't it revealing that the first thing they do is not what makes sense for their protection? Well, what, what would common sense say? Makes sense if you're in this situation and you have enemies all around you. What does common sense say makes sense? Prioritize your safety. Right? Get a plan together. Become a prepper. Find out how many men of fighting men, fighting age you have. Find out what's needed to rebuild this wall. Get a, get a plan for its construction in motion. That is priority number one. It's your safety and, and protection. No. That's man's wisdom. Priority number one is the worship of God. Priority number one is the worship of God. Just a couple of reflections for you. I want you to think about this. Brothers and sisters, never let what makes sense to you trump the priorities of the Word of God. Never let what makes sense to you trump the priorities of the Word of God. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So if you've got a situation you're faced with, and common sense tells you something that's not in keeping with Scripture, go with Scripture every time. Okay? Take Scripture to the bank. couple of examples. So, this is things not to do. Don't say, You know, I, I can't confess my sin to my spouse, or... Or my friend or my parents. I can't do that because think what's going to happen. I mean, that's just not going to go well. Now be clear, not every sin needs to be confessed. And ask me or another elder if you have a question about which is which. But if confession is needed, don't hold off because you're convinced it's going to go badly. That's elevating your thinking above the word of God. Or how about this? I can't walk through the biblical reconciliation process with this person. Why? Well, because I know it's not going to go well. (laughs) Again, I understand pastorally how that might make sense to you based on your experience and based on common sense, but that's not in keeping with the Word of God. Or how about this? You know, I financially can't give what I need to give to God Because it just doesn't work in our budget. Now, side note, that needs to be worked through. Your understanding of just what exactly God requires of you regarding financial giving. But let's say you understand what he requires of you, and you just don't do it because you don't see how it's going to work out. Or it seems like it's not going to work out. Again, don't let common sense trump God's word, okay? Brothers and sisters, God's word is wisdom. Our wisdom is folly in comparison. So let's follow this book even when it doesn't make sense to us, okay? And then second thing, and this is actually tied to the first. The safest thing to do in times of fear and anxiety is to run into the presence of God. The safest thing to do in times of fear and anxiety is to run into the presence of God. So encouraging. We've been in the Old Testament a lot over the past several years. How many times has Israel gotten it right? Like negative three. I mean, it's just really bad. Okay. But Israel nailed it here. You read it and you're like, hallelujah. There's hope, right? Fearful circumstances, unknown outcomes. She could have done a million things that would have made sense. But the first thing she did was orient herself toward the Lord her God. She worshipped God. So brothers and sisters, when you are faced with situations that are dire, when you have a trial before you, make sure that before you do anything else, orient yourself to the Lord your God. Set the Lord your God before your heart. Go to God. Give yourself a fresh to your Savior, this is what you should do. And actually, this is the best thing for you too. That's the funny thing. Because it frames your thinking, which in turn frames your actions, and it frames them around God. His wisdom, His word, His ways. Okay, back to the text. So they put their hand to the work, They've put their hand to the work of restoring the worship of God. The altar is up and running, and they're not done. So pick back up in verse 6, uh, halfway through verse 6. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jozadak made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah, together supervise the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Just a quick pause. We got the altar, but now we need the temple. And we need the temple because the altar and the temple are intricately tied together. They go together. The altar is at the entrance of the temple. So what does Israel do? she allocates resources for it. The people of Israel give money to the masons and the carpenters. They give food, drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians who bring materials for the temple from outside Jerusalem. Once they've got what they need, they get started. The text says they made a beginning. And I want you to notice it's everybody who made this beginning. You got the leaders, Zerubbabel, Yeshua. You got the priests, you got the Levites, but you've got All who had come to Jerusalem from captivity, the text says. So this is everybody's moving forward on this project. Back to verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now this is a beautiful moment. Israel has literally... Come back from the grave. She was in exile because of her sin 70 years. She is back in the land. And now the foundation of the temple, the temple of the living God, is being laid amazing and there's continuity here with her past when david brought the ark into jerusalem israel sang oh give thanks to the lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever first chronicles 16 when solomon brought the ark into the temple israel sang oh for he is good his steadfast love endures forever second chronicles 5 and that's what they're doing here They're singing, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. But there is not just singing here. There is sorrow too. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice. When they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. Now I want you to understand this picture. The young Israelites. Those born in captivity, those who never saw the temple in its glory, they're singing praise. And that's right. They should be. This is a wonderful, glorious, awesome moment. But the old men, those who've been around a long time, and whose eyes have seen the temple in its glory, they weep. And why do they weep? Because this temple This is not what it was This is not what it was It's only a shadow of its former self It's not what it was It's not what it could be It's not what it should be This is the temple The temple represents the totality of God's salvation promises This should be filled with glory but the reality of the situation is that it is a rough shod put together foundation surrounded by a city that's broken down there has got to be more and that's where the text leaves us appropriate joy at this new beginning but a sense of longing that this cannot be all that there is You know, chronologically, Ezra and Nehemiah is towards the end of the Old Testament. I understand as you're looking at it, you know, just the number of pages that are after Ezra and Nehemiah, it looks like there's a lot more left. But the books in the order of the canon aren't in chronological order. Ezra and Nehemiah are almost at the very end of the Old Testament. And so this longing, friends... This is a longing that continues to be felt for God's people even after this temple is fully reconstructed. They're just waiting. They're waiting for the fullness of God's salvation. And about 400 years after the end of Nehemiah, he comes. The fullness of the salvation that the old men rightly perceive hasn't come yet. Comes with the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally that word dwelt is tabernacled among us. Like, like, tabernacle and the the, I mean I'm sorry like the tabernacle and the temple after it God's presence with his glory God's presence I'm sorry like the tabernacle and the temple after it God dwells with his people Jesus is God's presence with his people the glory of God has come down from heaven in Jesus Jesus and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His, what? His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14 The glorious presence of God with His people, represented in a small way today through the foundation of the temple being laid, it comes to its fullness with the birth of Jesus Christ. He is the glory of God. And not only is he the glory of God, he is the temple of God. So do you recall what he said to the Jews in John chapter 2? As they stood by the temple, and Jesus had just cleansed it by driving out those who were turning a place of worship into a place of business. As they stood by and they, they asked him for a sign to authenticate why he had authority to do what he just did. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now they balk, of course. That's crazy, right? It took years to build this temple. But the text says he was speaking about the temple of his body. What was he doing? He was reorienting them. Showing them that everything this temple represents is fulfilled in him. He is the presence of God with his people. He is the totality of God's salvation. What they're longing for this morning in this text, it's now come. He's Jesus. And this is actually what we have all been longing for. He is the one through whom worship is ultimately restored. For all of us, friends, worship was broken in the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, we were all exiled from the presence of God. And collectively, we've all been yearning to be made right. In this sense, Israel's longing today, it's our longing too. And Jesus came to satisfy that longing. He came to be the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate burnt offering for sin. By dying on the cross in the place of guilty sinners brothers and sisters the people of Israel learned about grace by the morning and evening burnt offerings we see it in its fullness through the cross your sin should have led to death but Jesus died in your place you have been forgiven you have been given new life you have been brought back into the garden of God's presence worship has been restored And this is why we sing. This is why we, like the people of God, this morning, lifted up their voices at the temple's foundation being raised. This is why we, the people of God, who've been brought back from exile from our sin, this is why we worship, because we were exiled. But we have life through Jesus. And so we sing on Sunday. One more thought. A beautiful final parallel. Our worship is still tinged with sorrow too. I know you know that. So sometimes it's hard for you to lift your voice in praise because the burdens that weigh your soul down. Sometimes it's hard for you to sing on Sunday mornings, is it not? I mean, somebody be honest with me. You know you're forgiven. You know you have life. You know Jesus has risen from the grave. You know that there is every single reason to sing. But it's hard sometimes. You know that this is not all that there is. You're longing for the fullness of something that hasn't yet come to and there is a day, brothers and sisters, when every sorrow, when every sadness will forever be behind us. There is a day, brothers and sisters, when the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ will shine so brightly that it will eclipse everything else and you will be there. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, my encouragement to you is to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He has restored our worship of the one true God. He offers to restore you to worship the one true God. He takes your sin upon himself. He gives you his righteousness by faith, this by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, if you'll turn from your sin and trust in him. Well, what should we do while we wait? What should we do while we wait for the fullness of all that is to come? That's really where we are. We have it in more fullness than they had it this morning, but we don't have the fullness of it yet. What should we do? I think it's really simple, and I think the text gives it to us. I think we should prioritize worship. Isn't that what Israel did today? Israel prioritized the worship of God above everything else. And so the question I think you need to ask yourself is, are you prioritizing worship? Is the worship of God of first importance to you? This is instructive for us in so many ways. Just think about a few things. It's instructive for how you schedule your Sundays. We just encourage you pastorally, don't make Sunday a second Saturday. Obviously, be here, yes. But sometimes I find believers barely squeezing worship in after they've taken care of a few things or a few sporting events. And before they run off early to take care of some other things or other sporting events. It it, it feels a bit more like squeezing God into your schedule instead of prioritizing this day to be given most primarily and heartily to God and God's people. I want to encourage you to make this day what the Puritans used to call a market day for the soul A market day was when you went to market, you buy and sold and got the things that you needed for the week ahead. And the Puritans said that Sunday was a market day for the soul to do business with the Lord your God and to get what you need. Prioritize the worship of God on Sunday morning. But how about this? It applies in so many ways. How about just the first of our days? Are the first of our days Given to God. I know for me, as soon as I wake up, the question is, how quickly am I going to check my email? Right? I think it's so good for us, brothers and sisters, to not give ourselves to email, social media feeds, or the news outlets, but to give ourselves to God as an expression of worship to Him and the primacy that He deserves. To give Him even the primacy of our day. Or how about this? When faced with decisions regarding what to do with all things in regards to our time or our treasure or our talents, do we simply stop and think, what would God have me do? How should my relationship with him and thus his primacy in my heart demonstrate itself here? In our relationship with our kids, what's the most important thing? That you teach them That God is worthy to be worshipped and prized above all other things. When you think about retirement, some of you are getting to that phase. Are you thinking of how you can honor and serve the Lord in this special season? Is that first and foremost on your mind? As you even think about the job you take or where you live geographically, are you thinking about how this might affect your ability to worship God through your involvement and investment in Christ's church? Oh, friends, prioritizing worship is not just about coming on Sunday morning. It's about saying to God, you are first. And help me, oh God, to live Monday through Saturday in a way that reflects that reality. (laughs) There are a million things that you could give yourself to. Are you giving yourself first and foremost to the worship of your God in your heart? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for... Your mighty act of redemption which we see, Father, in Jesus Christ and the fullness of which we have not yet seen but we know it's coming. We thank you, Father, for bringing us from death to life. We thank you, Father, for the ultimate sacrifice. We thank you, Father, for Jesus. We thank you that we have been restored to fellowship with you. And so we praise, we sing, we also sorrow as we wait for the fullness of what is to come. And so in the midst, Father, as we too, like our brothers and sisters before us, as they were building in Ezra and Nehemiah, so too as we build, O Father, help us to worship you first and foremost.